All right, when we first planted this church three years ago, I did a really, really dumb thing. Um, one of the many really, really dumb things I did. Uh, my, my wife was uh, out in Seattle visiting her sister with our oldest son, and I was at home with our two younger boys, and they were playing off in a room, and I was preparing to plan a sermon on uh, Revelation, and that wasn't the dumb thing I did, though maybe not the wisest choice as we're kicking off a church to preach a sermon from Revelation, but I, <laughs> the dumb thing was uh, I have these, these really, really tall bookshelves in, my, in our office, and it's 11-foot-tall bookshelves, and I didn't have room, so the book I want is on the very top of that 11-foot-tall bookshelf. And not only is it at the very top of that 11-foot-tall bookshelf, it's also on the very far right of the bookshelves. And in front of that, it is blocked by my, my drum set at home. And so I just have my drum set there, books up there. I need that commentary, apparently really, really bad. Um, and so to get it, I, I get on top of uh, what's a drum throne, which is just like a really tall, small stool um, and a very flimsy one at that. And I one foot pirouetted onto this drum throne, trying to reach the book of Revelation commentary. And I got the book. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't see myself as a clumsy human being, but I have been known to have a, a number of falls in my day. Uh, <laughs> but this one was by far the absolute worst fall I've ever had. Um, if, if you can imagine... Uh, falling on top of a drum set just sounds painful, right? <laughs> With all the cymbals and metal, and it just already sounds painful. Stop talking to me. <laughs> gosh. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so it already is super painful. When I fell, yes, I fell on the drum set, but it, when you think of a drum and you're like, okay, so maybe like the center part's soft, yes, but they have metal rings around the wood. Um, and when I fell, I fell into my floor tom and the floor tom hits the ground and I on top of it and the, the metal ring just, just went onto my shin, my right shin. And I fell down and I, I just kind of blanked out that the, you know, the fastness of what happened there. And I, I, I just look up and I, and I look down and I think, that a chunk of my leg is, is still on the, the drum. Because when I look down, I can see my shin bone. Yeah. <laughs> I go, oh, oh, like, ah. And I'm like on the ground just like, what do I do? Like, There's no one to help. I was like, boys, help. And Mateo runs. He's like, ah, ah. It's like, go, go get a towel. Go get a towel. And so he grabs a, a beach towel, um, and <laughs> perfect, <laughs> hopefully it wasn't used the day before. And so I just grab it, and I just wrap it around my leg like a tourniquet, uh, and tie it tight. And I was like, get my shoes, get my shoes. And so we get my shoes on, and then get your shoes, and we get into the truck. And driving to urgent care um, is a difficult thing <laughs> with the foot that is just in, in that, that, that state. Um, so I was trying my left foot, but that's really hard. <laughs> like, this feels dangerous. So I was like, ah! So we get the urgent care. Turns out, I didn't lose a chunk of my leg. It was still there, but it was like a sleeve of a shirt that was just pulled up. So as they, you know, they, they made it so I couldn't feel it, they, they, they pulled my skin down. And so it's still there. Good news. <laughs> sure. I asked Malcolm, is this too graphic of an illustration? <laughs> no, go for it. That's Malcolm. Uh, <laughs> And so to this day, I have a triangle-shaped uh, 
scar on my leg that is just evidence of my stupidity. How many of you guys have scars like that? <laughs> Ooh, lots of stories. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> evidence of my stupidity. I mean, these scars, they, they tell a story, yes? Everyone, you can tell some great stories with your scars. And, and, but the beautiful thing is scars do heal, yes, but if the, if the wound is deep enough, you, you carry it around with you for the rest of your life, right? And so today, I don't want to just talk about wounds and scars that heal. I want to talk about wounds and scars that bring healing. The title of my sermon today is, no doubt, Wounds That Heal, Wounds That Actually Bring Life to You. Wounds and scars that you actually cherish. Hard to think about it in those ways. But that's where we're going this morning. So the, the direction we're going to go with this, we're going we're to talk about this in three ways. We're going to look at the bodies, the scars, and the healing. Heavenly bodies, <laughs> scars, and healing. Because we want to talk about these scars that are evidence of our past, but also something that's going to point us to the future. And so... First up, heavenly bodies. Um, our bodies are funny things, yes? I mean, I, I think our bodies are, are phenomenal and how they, they heal. If you see, like, you're like, it's just kind of fascinating how, how a body can heal itself. That if you do have a wound, that it, that it actually can heal itself. That, I think that's just phenomenal. And like the way your bodies work where you have something hits, you have kind of an involuntary action. Some of these things that our bodies do fascinate me. Um, the other times our bodies fail us, yes? I mean, many of us, our bodies are starting to break down, and there may be some, many of you who have uh, some envy when you see someone walking or running with joy. And you're like, I, I know what that used to feel like, right? Because our bodies start to break down, and our bodies begin to fail us. And so the question that I think many of us have, though, is, well, will heaven be any different? Like, when we get to heaven, will we have... These bodies, or will we have, will we be these kind of ghostly figures? What will our bodies be like? And our passage today gives us a little hint into what our future will be. Because we see what Jesus' resurrected body was like, it actually gives us a little glimpse into our future, which is really fascinating. So remember last week, we, we celebrated Easter in August, and so today, this, you know, it's Easter in September, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, Jesus goes to Mary, you know, and, and it's, he is risen, he is risen indeed, right? This is the celebration, the joy of Easter, that, that was happening early on in the morning. Now, in our passage today, it's still Easter, it's still the same day, it's just now at, at, in the, at the night, it's in the evening. So in verse 19, we kick off in our passage and says, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now note the scene here. The doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And so if you remember the, the sadness that Mary came to the tomb with, that she was coming, experiencing the trauma of seeing someone she loved die and murdered, and yes, she's been, she's been changed. She's been given this good news. And some of the disciples saw an empty tomb. But you can see how it, it, the, the news of joy has not fully hit them yet. The disciples are still mourning. They're hiding. They're, they're, I mean, if they, the state just killed their leader, what are they going to do to them? And so you can feel the, the fear and the anxiety just 
so present in this room. Like you can just pierce it with the, the tension that's just right there. And then we're, we're explicitly told that the door is locked. And then in verse 19, surprisingly, it goes on, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. The door is locked. They're frightened. And all of a sudden, bam, Jesus appears in front of them. Peace be with you. Now, like John gives us the details of the locked door for a reason. Because of this miraculous nature of Jesus' appearance. Just as Jesus' resurrected body passed through the grave clothes, his now resurrected body is now passing through these locked doors and is materializing in front of them in this way. Now, that would be frightening, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so he says, peace be with you, <laughs> right? Which is cool. You're like, that's cool. You can walk through walls. But like, what do we do with that? How do we understand a resurrected body passing through walls like that? It makes us feel like Jesus is like Casper, the friendly ghost, that he's, he's kind of this mist that can just pass through things. Is that what our bodies will be like? We'll just be kind of this misty figure that can kind of fade away? But that's not all we hear about Jesus' resurrected body. Other gospel accounts tell us that, that he was eating fish with them. In this, in this passage, Jesus tells Thomas to touch his side, to touch his hands and the wounds, right? And so he's actually physical, though. And so he's physical, yet he can pass through walls. And so it, it doesn't make sense for us. But let me geek out for one moment. And, and I just love uh, talking about some type, some things I love going real nerdy into. Um, space is one. Um, dimensions are another. How many dimensions are there? If, you start, if someone starts to think about that, they're like, okay, well, let's start to name the dimensions, like the, the picture up here. Um, they, they usually start with, okay, you have, you have height, you have length, and you have width. And so if you were to describe a square, you go height and length. It's the 2D. If you want to say, well, it's a box, and you give it some depth, you, you give the width, and it's the 3D, right? You guys go to see 3D movies, and you love this. You're like, oh, it feels real. It feels substantive. Like 3D feels right. It's the full picture here. And we use these three coordinates, these three, three dimensions, to, to, to pinpoint an object's location in space. But we don't just exist in space. We also exist in time, right? And so that's the fourth dimension. We're, we're actually 4D. Uh, so once you actually know where some, where some things altitude, longitude, latitude, and position in time is, you're able to now dis to discover that, pl that plot's existence in the universe. You go, this is where it resides, in this, in this location, but in this point in time. Now, many scientists are, are beginning to theorize that it's not just 4D, that there's actually 11D, uh, 11 dimensions, and maybe even more than that. I don't know how that works. I'm not going to go into that. But all of that to say is that there are other ways to think about physical objects in far different ways that we understand. That's beyond our thinking. Yes? Let me give you an example. 50 years ago, if someone were to hear about this, this wild technology that we just take for granted called Bluetooth, they would go, okay, so you're telling me that the music can connect, connect without wires. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> All right, yeah, whatever. So that, like that, that's wild to us. And if we, if we think that now, we're like, well, it's just, it's just Bluetooth. Why can't we think about this with Jesus' resurrected body? 
Let me, let, me, let me break it down to the simplest, most basic thing. If you stick your hand in water, what happens? The water moves and goes around your hand. Why? Because your hand is more solid than the water. And what I believe is happening here, what we get a picture of, is that our resurrected bodies are going to be more real than the physical matter around us. They're going to be more substantive, more solid than the, the matter around us that it actually goes around us that you could go through these walls or just appear. Like this is, this is what this means for you and me. It means that when we are raised to new life, we are raised with these resurrected bodies that are more real, that are more solid, that are actually experiencing life to its full and that when we, when we do go through things, it actually doesn't hurt. That there will be no pain in heaven. There will be no drum sets to just kill you, right? <laughs> you, can, you can fall on drum sets all the time and you just go right through them. There, there, our bodies will be more substantive than those things. But it also means that our bodies are physical. That we will actually have a physical body. That our bodies truly matter. That there's going to be food in heaven. There will be tacos in heaven. I know it. Amen? <laughs> there will be French toast in heaven. There will be mashed potatoes in heaven. What, what, what's, what's something you, you want to be in heaven? Avocados in heaven. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't make the cut. Sorry. <laughs> there will be avocados in heaven, right? There will be all these good things. There is also going to be good music. There's going to be hymns and hip-hop, right? It's going to be some good music. It means, it means in heaven we're going to be able to explore and spelunk. It's going to be a physical world that we get to be a part of, that God is now remaking and restoring all things to the way he wanted it to be before sin mucked it all up. Now, Esau Macaulay, uh, great theologian, uh, writer, says this, Jesus was raised with his brown Middle Eastern Jewish body, when my, Esau Macaulay's, body is raised, it will be a black body, one that is honored alongside bodies of every hue and color. The resurrection of black bodies will be the definitive rejection of all forms of racism because if a black body can be hanged from a tree and burned, never to be restored again, what kind of victory is the survival of the soul? If we can just destroy our bodies in such a way, then what kind of victory is this? No, when we come back, our, our bodies will come back and they will be restored fully because God made you. He will, he will restore you as you began. He will restore you full, complete because when God made you, he made you in the Imago Dei. When God first made you, he said you are good. That, that's what he's remaking here. And some of us, some of us don't like our body. Some of us don't like our body image. Some of us don't like the mirror. Some of us don't like the scale. And what I want you to hear is that God is rejecting all of these forms of self-hatred because when God made you, he says you are beautiful and you are good. And when I remake you, I'm going to put that same skin on you. It's going to be healed. And it's going to be full. And so let's reject all of those, those, those nasty ways of thinking about ourselves because God loves you that way. And it's just so common, even in Christian circles, to think of our, our, our heavenly experience, this afterlife, as this disembodied bliss with these, these naked baby angels just floating around, bouncing from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never taught that. 
Christianity has never taught this disembodied future. No, our beliefs are more radical. We believe our bodies will come back and we will recognize one another as Jesus was recognized by his disciples. It took them a minute at first, right? But they knew, they knew it was him. But what's really interesting about this whole, this whole passage is not just that we will get bodies in heaven. Not that just our bodies will come back, but it's, it's how they come back. That, to me, is the wild part of this whole passage. Like, what state are our bodies in? And that's when we move from bodies to scars. Look at, look at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin. Thomas was a twin, apparently. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And this is where history has labeled Thomas doubting Thomas. He's making these demands of Jesus. He's putting these huge conditions on God, and, which is just so presumptuous. Unless Jesus does this, I will not believe in him. Right? It's so presumptuous because he's skeptical. And why is he skeptical? Because Thomas had probably the biggest case of FOMO ever in the history of the world. Like Thomas like realized, like, the one night I didn't go to small group and Jesus shows up? Are you kidding? No wonder he's doubting. Like, yeah, sure, Jesus showed up. Like, let's take care of my kids. Like, whatever it may be. Right? Thomas wasn't there. And so when Thomas comes, he now has to rely on the testimony of these disciples. And I think this is where we relate with Thomas so much. Because Thomas had to rely on the audible testimony. We have to rely on the written testimony. And Thomas is known for doubting, and I think we are also known for our doubts. Like, we only get to read about it. And and if we're honest, like, yes, it's doubting Thomas, but it's also the doubting disciples until Jesus showed up to them, right? And it's also really the doubting Christians. Christianity and Christians are marked by doubt, Many times, it's not just belief, and you always believe. Our life is this, this roller coaster of belief and doubt over and over and over, if you're honest with yourself. But then, Jesus comes back a week later. In verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And so what is this message to us? It is to stop doubting and believe. But I also don't want you to miss the wild nature of what Jesus is doing here. Like, Jesus is just super gracious to Thomas. Like, he's so patient with his disciples who are making these demands of God that I will not believe unless you do this. And Jesus, in his grace, acquiesces to this demand of of the God of the universe. It says, I'll show up a week later, and I'll let you see me, and I'll encourage you to touch and to feel. (laughs) But also, did you catch that? Jesus has scars on his hand. He has a scar on his side. Now, why would a resurrected body still have scars? That's the part. I feel like the first part we're all on board with. We're like, yes, I can't wait for this, this, this renewed body. We're, I think we're all excited for that. But this second point about the scars on Jesus, 
really confounds us. It's so confusing. Why would our resurrected bodies have scars? I thought when we get to heaven, there's going to be no more mourning and no more tears and no more sadness. How can that be with scars on Jesus? And yes, when Jesus appears to Thomas, he's, he's appearing to him to, to, give, to prove his identity to Thomas. But I think something even greater is happening in this moment here. The evidence of the wounds actually bring about healing to Thomas and bring about healing to you and me. These are wounds that actually bring healing. I mean, this whole, whole thing makes me think of 2 Corinthians 4, where, where Paul says some, something very, very radical and wild here. He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light momentary affliction. Paul was shipwrecked. <laughs> he, was, he was accused as a traitor. He was, he, was, he was humiliated. He was literally hunted. Light, momentary affliction. Like, <laughs> how can you see your present suffering as that unless you are a masochist, unless you really enjoy this? But I think what is happening here is that we have to go back to the multidimensionality of God, that we have an eternal weight of glory, and the word for glory is actually weightiness, and so an eternal weight of weightiness, meaning something more substantive, something more solid, is now pushing out the less solid, these sufferings. And so Paul isn't actually saying, you know, don't worry, something better is going is to sound much better. It's not, he's not making a comparison between the two here. He's not trying to say that. No, what's wild is he's saying that these moments of pain in your life, the words there says it's preparing you for glory. It's almost as if they're needed to prepare you for glory. And so the biggest wounds in our lives are driving us to God. The greatest scars in our lives are actually driving us to God. They're not evidence of our shame and our stupidity. They're evidence and songs of deliverance and redemption. There's something beautiful there. I mean, think back in your, in your life. All those scars that you can think of that are incredibly painful have actually made you who you are today. Yes? I mean, we're, some of our scars are physical, but I think many of our scars are emotional, spiritual, and they've made you who you are today. And we're not, we're not doing the, the Christian duct tape thing over. It's like, don't worry, it's all going to work out in the end. We're not doing that. Like, no, some of those things that happened to you were evil. And they're wrong and they're bad. And so we want to we admit that. And at the same time, as those scars and wounds begin to heal, if you look back and are able to see it, sometimes it's hard to see if you're so close to it, you can see not just the healing of that scar, but you can see a healing that's, that's now affecting the rest of your body. That it's actually changing you to be the person you are today. That that scar actually brought healing to the rest of who you are. You, you ever see that? You ever, you'll be able to look back and go, I'm, it was so painful, I would never want to do it again, but it's actually, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad who I am today because of that. It, it's, it's hard to see this. Um, I mean, remember this, like, Thomas and the disciples saw Jesus' wounds before. And so it wasn't just the wounds that they saw that brought them healing. I mean, they saw the nails going into his hands and into his feet and into his side, right? They saw that. And they, when they saw that, they thought that was the end of their life. 
They thought that was the evidence that all of the sad things were more true. But now that they see the wounds are healed, (laughs) now that they see that they're restored and made full and brought back to life, it's now evidence of an even greater joy. And so what it's telling us is that the nails and the pain are not the end of your story. The painful wounds in your life are not the things that are going to describe and mark your life. There's something greater happening here. And I think the best illustration that I can think of that, that, that even comes close to understanding this is this Japanese art form of kintsugi. Have you seen this before? It, it's this beautiful, beautiful, this art of the practice of taking this broken pottery and, and mending these broken areas literally with gold. With gold. <laughs> And what it does is it, it, it treats the breakage in these objects and, and, and repair as part of the history of the object rather than something to, to disguise it. So, yeah, they could, have, they could have mended it and painted it over so you, you would never see the break, but that's not what they're doing. They're highlighting the breaks. They're highlighting the cracks. And the, the beauty is actually in the cracks and the, and the, and the mending there. The art is actually seeing the cracks and the the brokenness coming together. Because if you just had a bowl, a blue bowl sitting on your your table, no one would think anything of it. You're like, you should put that away. (laughs) But if you have a bowl with gold mending it together, that is a piece of art, right? Like this is what I think God is doing with us. That he's putting us back together, mending us in such a way that when we see the cracks and we see how God has healed us, it is the stories of life and redemption. You're like, that is a piece of art. That is a powerful story that I want to display for everyone to see. I want people to know about that. I mean, think of the people in your life who, who, who have scars. Those are the people you usually trust. It's people who, who, who hide their scars. You're like, I don't know. I don't know about you. It's the people who know their scars that you're actually the closest with because they're willing to share that with you. And you know their story and they know yours. There's power in knowing this stuff. This is what God has done in my life. When we start telling these these stories of these cracks, we're telling the stories of healing of redemption. And when we start to see the gold filling the scars, then we can actually see truer healing happen. And that's when we come to our last point. And that's what we see with what happens with Thomas. And what many describe as the climax of the whole book of, of John here. That this point right here with Thomas is the most important part of the, the gospel of John right? Jesus has been doubted by the masses. He's been doubted by religious leaders, by Romans, by Greeks, by Jews, by men, by women, by his inner circle, and by Thomas ever so clearly here, doubts him and gives demands that says, I won't believe unless you do X, Y, and Z. And now, how did Jesus know that Thomas said that? How did Jesus know that Thomas made that demand? He wasn't there, right? Did Jesus come back for a, a, a midweek resurrection and come to the small group Bible study? And Peter's like, you'll never believe what happened to Thomas. <laughs> and he's like, Nark, no. Right? That's not what happened. Jesus doesn't come back in the middle of the week and hear about it. We just know Jesus shows up this, a week later into the room a second time, just miraculously appearing, and he knows what Thomas did. And so what it tells you and me is that Jesus hears us even when we are not present. Jesus hears you even when he's not with you in that moment. And so it also tells you that Jesus is always with you. 
And so he hears all of the stupid conditions we've laid on him. He hears all the dumb things we've said. He's heard what Thomas said. He heard the conditions Thomas gave, and he came and said, Thomas, see my wounds, touch them, be healed. And it's just so gracious. Like, it's so, so gracious. Like, <laughs> this is another evidence of the multidimensionality of God, that he can, he can span space and time and hear our own, our own words and conversations even when he's not with us. And what does Thomas do when he, when he says that to him? Thomas doesn't actually go and touch his hands. I know you've probably seen some images of Thomas putting his finger in his, in his hands or in his side. The text doesn't say that Thomas actually touches Jesus. Jesus tells him to do so. And in that moment, Thomas now believes. Thomas is convinced in that moment because of Jesus reappearing, bringing peace, showing him visually the wounds. And then Thomas comes with the greatest proclamation ever in verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. I, want I don't want y'all to skip over how big that is. Like, this is the climax of the book when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, we usually think those two things are like the same words. But, but Lord, for the Jewish audience, is anyone you follow, anyone you submit to. It's your, you know, someone you, you're, 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 you're listening to. But my Lord and my God, I mean, think about the Jewish culture, which is probably the most monotheistic religion to date, Right? It, they, they grew up, they were, they, were, they were birthed into knowing that there was only one God. And they would recite, recite the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And Thomas, the skeptic, Thomas, the doubter that we know him as, who has such disbelief, now gives the highest title ever to Jesus in this, My Lord and my God, my Yahweh. <laughs> what? I mean, to, to understand how wild that would be, let's imagine someone coming to your work and saying, you know, I know you have one CEO, but I'm also the CEO. <laughs> your response would be like, wait, there's two CEOs of our company? Well, actually, there's three, but really one. Because <laughs> there's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but we're really one. And you go, I'm going to make a phone call. <laughs> your response is sheer doubt and disbelief. What moves someone from such doubt and disbelief in that, that radical way of thinking of, of there's only one God to now going, there's, there's three persons in one God and one person, or three persons in one God in the Trinity? Like, how does that work? It's the resurrection. The resurrection changes Thomas in such a way. When he sees it, when he sees the resurrected Jesus and he sees the holes, the evidences of grace and redemption, it puts him back together and he spiritually resurrects in this moment. And from this point on, Thomas is not the doubter. Thomas is not the doubter. He gives this great proclamation and Thomas is known for going and planting churches in history books, tell us this, going and planting churches in India and he himself is martyred for his faith. Thomas himself, the one who doubted that the, the, his savior was stabbed and came back to life, that same person was stabbed himself when he went to his death. Like, <laughs> how do you move from such doubt to such invincible belief? It's the resurrection. It's the evidences of this redemption and grace. And Thomas sees it here. How do you believe it? How do you come to believe that, such, such good news? Every time Jesus shows up in these passages, what does he do? He says, peace be with you. I mean, Jesus is almost dripping with grace. 
in every interaction with his disciples. He comes to them with such grace. Every chance he gets, he says, peace be with you. And it's not just the Hebrew greeting that he's saying that for, but just remember, after the disciples forsook Jesus at his arrest, and they all went scattering and running and hiding, Jesus materializes amongst them. you got to be scared in that moment. And you must be wondering, is he coming to rebuke us? Is there going to be shame involved here? And the first thing he says is peace. And so many of you guys may be scared to walk into the doors of a church and wondering, are you going to get that same rebuke and that same shame? And we want to say the first thing you hear is peace. The grace of Jesus is for sinners. It's not for those who've cleaned themselves up to come in. It is peace and it is grace to you, unmerited, unearned. But Jesus merited it and he earned it and he deserved it for you on your behalf. Amen? Amen. Jesus has given you this. And so when Thomas looks at his holes in his hands, he is healed. And so Jesus is now a walking fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, by his wounds, we are healed. (laughs) The grace of Jesus brings a deeper healing, not just physically, but spiritually. Our souls need that. I mean, don't you long for that fuller healing? Don't you long to be actually at peace in your soul? It is yours if you ask for it. John invites us into why he's written this book at the very end of this chapter. In verse 31, he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so I've written this so that you will believe. And now after we've gone through this whole series of John, do you believe? Do you? Like, do you, do you get excited about this? Like, all the miracles, all the healings, all the teachings, all this loaded theology was ultimately so that you would trust Jesus. Like, when you look at Jesus and you, and you read about the scars that are in his hands, do you believe? Do you want to put your hope and faith in him and confess like Thomas, you are my Lord and my God? Is that true for you? Like, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And in, in, in a couple minutes, I'm going to pray. And I want to, if you've never prayed that type of prayer, I want you to pray with me. If you've never said, I want to make a decision to actually follow Jesus for the rest of my life, I want you to invite you to pray with me. Because that's, that's why John wrote this book, so that you would believe. But he says two things. Not just that you would believe, but he says, by believing you may have life. And for many of us who may have already walked the faith and, and do believe, We've also stubbed our toe, and we also fall into doubts, and we start wondering, is this real? And we start doubting, is this resurrection life even real? What is that life he's even referring to? Because I'm so riddled with doubts, and I want you to see the, the risen Jesus and the hope that you actually have here. Like, the resurrected life isn't something that happens then. The resurrected life starts now. We don't have to wait till then. When, when, when we come to faith, It says that there's two resurrections. There's the first resurrection that happens right then. Then there's the resurrection of our bodies, right? Do you want to come to life and be resurrected now? Like, it's now. Forever starts now. Isn't that wild? Like, the resurrected life begins here on earth this day, like, whenever it was for you. We don't have to wait to an eternal plane. It starts now. And so our life can actually become marked by love and hope and faith. And grace and peace, like it, we have that full life now if we want it. And so I encourage you, lay down your conditions to God. 
to get that full life. If you're like Thomas and saying, I will only believe if, if you actually deliver me from this pain that I'm coming to. Like, what you're really doing is holding God hostage. I will only do this if you do X, Y, and Z. And God has done so much for you already. And so if, if you're saying, I will only believe if, I want to encourage you to look at, at the healing that God has already done in your life. Look at the gold that he's poured into the wounds and the scars and realize you could be enjoying that, that resurrected life now. And then lastly, this is a very practical one. Find someone this week and tell a story about your scars. Any of your hands went up. You may start with a physical scar. Tell that story. But also tell stories of redemption and of healing because I think that's what we all need right now. It encourages us in our own walk when we hear it about you. And so find someone to tell the stories of these redemption too. Let me pray for us.